So listen, if you were given a test, and in that test, you were asked to list the 10 most prominent men in the Bible, how would you do? Where would you begin your list? I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? The answer to that question is pretty obvious. If if you're going to talk about the 10 most prominent men in the Bible, you're going to start with Jesus, of course, every single time. And, uh, and so then where would you go? Probably people would go to Moses. That would be number two, probably. Um, and then we would go to David, likely, and maybe Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. We would go there. Peter, perhaps. And then after that, it might begin to get a little bit thin. Like, I mean, there are a lot of, lot of men that we could choose from. But here's what I wonder. Would your list of the 10 most prominent men in the Bible include the man Abraham? Well, it certainly should include the man Abraham, and I hope that by the time we finish this series in a few weeks, you'll understand why it should include his name. It certainly should be included, Abraham's name should be included in that list, if for no other reason, and there are many other reasons, but if for no other reason, we would include his name because of the sheer number of mentions that Abraham receives in the scripture. Did you know that Abraham is spoken of by name over 300 times in the Bible? And by my count, that makes him number four in terms of frequency of mention in Scripture. The name most often found in the Bible is David, even more than Jesus, King David. Secondly is Jesus. Third is Moses. And then fourth is Abraham. So for that reason alone, we would need to include Abraham in the list of the most prominent men in the Bible. It's interesting to me as well that Abraham is second most mentioned Old Testament figure mentioned in the New Testament. Second only to Moses and barely. I mean, it's a close second that he comes in behind Moses. So when you think about those things, 300 mentions in the Bible, about 75 of those are in the New Testament. Here's what you can immediately discern about Abraham. He is historically significant to the nation of Israel and the history of God's plan in the world. Historically significant. He is also, he, he, he figures prominently in the theology of the new covenant. And so he's not just historically significant, he is theologically important. We need to understand God's work in Abraham's life as we understand theologically what God has said about our redemption in the New Testament. Now, not only are those two things true, but also the fact that when you look at the life of Abraham and you consider his faith and you look at his family, those things, his life, his faith, and his family are all uh, exemplary for us. And you can, you can look at Abraham's life and family, and there you will find a model that it would do all of us well to follow his model. And I hope you will. I hope over these weeks you're going to learn so much from his life that you're going to say, I want to be like, I want to be more like Abraham. Over these 12 weeks, we're going to spend the next 12 weeks diving into his life. And over these weeks, we're going, to, we're going to talk about his faith. We're going to see his journey. We're going to learn from his mistakes. And we're going to learn how to, how to emulate uh, the life of Abraham. In fact, I hope that you will be faithful to bring 
people with you. Uh, we're going to provide you with some invitation cards uh, this morning as, uh, as you leave. These cards are on tables uh, at any door that you go out of here in Weaverville, in the back of the room there at uh, our East Campus. Uh, these cards are available for you. Take them with you. Here's what I want you to do with them. I want you to give them to your family members and invite them. Now, listen, you can give them to your server at the restaurant or your neighbor or coworker, whomever. But for these 12 weeks, I really want us to focus on inviting our family members to come to church with us. Here's why. Because we're going to be taking the life of Abraham and every single week learning truths that apply to our family. And every person you know has some form of family. You know, everybody was born from somebody, right? So they have some form of family, maybe a deep, rich family experience, maybe an estranged, a difficult, and a distant family experience. But everybody has something. And so every week, we're going to be applying these truths to family life. And you can promise the people that you're inviting that they're going to learn some things and it will help them. And along the way, they're going to get the gospel and we're praying that they're going to come to faith in Jesus. This is going to be the initiative, this 2023 Come and See initiative is going to begin by focusing on family. And in fact, let me tell you how we're doing Come and See this year. You remember that last year with our Come and See initiative, we, we ran that through our life groups and through our ministry teams. And so if you weren't yet in a life group, or if you hadn't yet committed uh, to serve on a ministry team, then you didn't really get to participate in Come and See. This year, we're going to put our arms around the entire church family, and we want everybody participating in Come and See. In Come and See this year, we are going to divide the church in half. If you could imagine the center aisle, or the center aisle there at East, and divide the church in two, we're going to be a two-team uh, um, uh, army uh, this year, all right? And so every week, we're going to ask half of our church to pray for people who are being invited to come and see. And every week, we're going to ask the other half of our church to invite people to come and see, all right? And so here's what I'm going to know. I'll be in a rhythm. You will live in a rhythm as well that I never, listen carefully, I never just come to church, but I always come to church praying for people who have been invited to come to church or I come to church having invited somebody to come with me and hopefully they're sitting right there next to me. So it's never just my church, I go, that's the end of it. I'm always praying, I'm always inviting, I'm always on mission. Now, the way that we're gonna divide the church in half is the old-fashioned way, and so that is A through M and N through Z, your last name, all right? So if your name begins with A through M, and if you need help knowing, ask your neighbor. They'll tell you what your name begins with. If your name begins with A through M, last name, then you're, you are praying this week. Begin today asking God to bless everybody who's inviting in these next seven days. If your name, last name begins with N through Z, I don't think we have any Zs, but we might. If your name begins with those letters, you're inviting. So don't just come to church next week. Invite somebody to come and know that the rest of your church is praying. And that means that every week we'll have about a thousand people praying and about a thousand people asking. And we believe there's power in prayer and there's power in an invitation, amen? And there's power in the word of God. And so this is our strategy for this week. And so you be faithful to do that. And I know that our family members are going to be helped. Here's what, I, here's what is absolutely true. There are some of you here today who are ladies and you love Jesus and you're serving the Lord. And you're trying to raise those kids to know the Lord. 
but your husband's not helping. He may not even know the Lord. And he doesn't attend with you, and you're just kind of doing this thing on your own. I, I want you to know we're praying for him to come to faith in Jesus this year. And, and the, that role can be reversed as well. Husbands that are coming, their wives aren't a, a believer yet. And we're praying for those wives to come to Jesus. Or maybe your mom and dad aren't believers, or your kids are prodigals, or, or, or you've got a cousin or a nephew, or whatever. But they need Jesus, and they need to know what the Word of God says to their family situation. And we're going to be intentional this year, praying for them, inviting them, and then telling them from God's word how that the Lord can make a difference. So we're going to invite them to learn with us about the importance of the life of Abraham and how that relates to us and the significance of Abraham's theology or the theology that we learn from Abraham and how that is important to us as well. So let's begin right now. I want you to look with me in Romans chapter 3. Uh, And let's begin in verse number 21, Romans 3 and verse 21, and listen to this declarative statement of the Apostle Paul. Verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God without the law, that is being right with God without keeping the law, following the Ten Commandments, keeping the religious rules, but now the righteousness of God without the law has been made manifest being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. When he says there's no difference, he means there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from. There's one way to be right with God. And the way that you are made to be right with God is not by keeping the commandments. It's not by being religious. It's not by doing better or being good. Listen to his conclusion, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. A man is made right with God by faith without the deeds of the law. This is the declarative Good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you didn't come to church today for me to tell you, straighten up, fly right, be good, don't act that way, and hopefully when you die, you will have done good enough to make it into heaven. That's not good news, and that's not what I've come to tell you. The declarative statement of the the gospel is this. You can be as good as you want to be. You can turn over a thousand new leaves. You can try as hard as you want. It will never make you righteous. There is one way to be righteous, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And when Paul makes this statement, He's writing to the Christians in Rome who are primarily in the Roman church Jews. And he writes these words to them. Therefore, verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without keeping the law. That statement would have been heresy to them. And it would have demanded that Paul explain this new teaching. And so you know what Paul does? He explains this theology. And so look at chapter 4. Here's his explanation, beginning in verse 1. He's going to explain it to these Jewish people by, by drawing on the experience of their great patriarch, whom they all loved and adored and revered, their great patriarch, Abraham. He's going to teach them that this is exactly what Abraham learned. 
that justification comes by faith and not by works. Look at it, chapter 4, verse number 1. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory, the King James says. It means he has something to brag about. If he's justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before God. For what, does the script, what do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned out of grace, but out of debt. Go ask 10 people on the street, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? At least 8 out of 10, it used to be 9 or 10 out of 10, but at least 8 out of 10 of them will say, well, I'm trying. I'm working hard, I'm trying to be good, I think my good outweighs my bad, and yeah, I'm hoping that when I get to, God, or get to heaven, God will let me in because I've been a good person. Let me translate that for you. God, I hope, will owe me an entrance into heaven. I'm trying to be good enough to earn my way so God will owe me an entrance into heaven. And what Paul says in this verse is, look, if you can be good enough to go to heaven, then when you get into heaven, you will not be there bragging on Jesus. You will be there bragging on you. Glory to be to me. I was really good, therefore I'm here. He says, but when we get righteous, we get justified, we're made right with God because we have been given this righteous condition by faith through grace, or by grace through faith, it is because God is merciful. We'll keep reading, verse number five, but to him that worketh not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. His faith is counted for righteousness. Now what I want to do this morning is because Paul is explaining to his hearers the, the justification and the righteousness that comes by faith as modeled or exemplified in Abraham's life, I want to spend some time in this first message introducing you to Abraham, okay? And so if you're going to learn about Abraham, we really have to go to the Old Testament, go all the way back to the book of Genesis. So go ahead and turn there, all the way back to Genesis, uh, chapter number 11. And once you find your place there, uh, I, well, actually, you already had your place marked, didn't you? Uh, once you're there, I want you to jot this down in your notes somewhere. It is to say that Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. If we're going to understand Abraham, here's the first thing to know. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Back in Romans 4, you just left there, but let me tell you what it says. Romans 4, verse number 1, uh, Abraham asked the question, what have we or what did Abraham our father, according to the flesh, find. What he was saying is Abraham is our father. We, the Jewish people he's talking about, we have all descended from Abraham. We'll trace that lineage beginning next Sunday. But know this, Abraham is in fact the father, the progenitor of the Jewish people, of the Jewish nation. Abraham was born, you're in Genesis 11, Abraham was born in approximately 2000 B.C. We don't know exactly uh, when, but around the year 2000 B.C. So about 4,000 years ago is when Abraham was born. He lived most of his life in a region called the Ur 
of the Chaldeans or the Ur of the Chaldees. The word Ur means light, and so he came from the light of the Chaldeans. And we know where this was. We know it because of Scripture. Make a note and read it later. Acts chapter 7 and verse 2. Acts 7 verse 2. Stephen is preaching, and Stephen says in that verse that we know that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in, here's what Stephen says, Mesopotamia. So the Ur of the Chaldees was located in ancient Mesopotamia, which we know exactly where that was. It's ancient Persia. If you wanted to put a pin on the map today, it would be uh, modern-day Iraq or Iran. That was the region where he was born and where he lived most of his life. You could put a pin in Baghdad, Iraq, and you would be very, very close to the Ur of the Chaldees. That's where Abraham began his life, and yet he is called out of the Ur to go and live in Canaan or modern-day Israel. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse number 27, I want you to follow along as I read. I want to introduce Abraham and his family to you. Verse 27 said, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in the land of his nativity, in the Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took to them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no children. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they left the Ur of the Chaldees. They went forth from the Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran, and they dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So you have a, a picture in those few verses of Abraham's family. I want to tell you five things out of these verses. I'm going to give them to you really quickly, okay? Five things to introduce to you kind of what this family is like. Number one, Terah, who is Abraham's father, was a pagan idolater. Now, I don't mean to be mean to, to Terah, but it's just the truth. Terah was a pagan idolater. Let me tell you how I know that. The Bible says it explicitly in Joshua chapter 24, verse number 2. Joshua said unto all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the river in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they, that is, that is Terah, Abram, and Nacor, Terah and his sons, Joshua says they served other gods. Now you might read that and go, how's this possible? Are they not descended from those people who came before them in Genesis 11 who loved and served the Lord? People like, oh, maybe Noah? Remember Noah, right? Do you know that Terah was the eighth grandson from Noah and because people lived so long in the days before the flood and just after the flood, the Bible tells us that Noah lived long enough that Terah would have known, or at least known of, 
Noah. He certainly could have had a relationship with Shem, Noah's son, his seventh great-grandfather, with whom he would have heard all of the stories of God and the flood and the recreation of the world following the flood. And yet, coming from such a strong, divine, spiritual background, by the time you get to Terah, he and his sons are worshiping false gods. Now, why is that important to us? Here's why. Because all of us, or most of us at least, are raising children or grandchildren. And we must know that even though our faith may be strong, theirs will not necessarily be so if we do not train them up in the way of the Lord and model for them a genuine faith life where we love Jesus and it shows clearly. Your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren may know nothing of the God that you serve if you don't influence it to his direction. Terah, Abram's father, was a pagan idolater. Number two, second thing to know is that Abraham's original name was Abram. You see this in Genesis 11 and verse number 27 where he's referred to as Abram. Now, when we were reading about him in in the New Testament in Romans 4, his name was Abraham. Now he's called Abram. Originally, this was his name, Abram, but God called his name, changed his name in Genesis 17 to be Abraham. It's interesting. Abram means exalted father. Perhaps so named by his parents, hoping that he would have a a wonderful family and he would be the father over many, many children. And yet he married Sarah or Sarai and they could have no children. And so when God said to him, I'm going to give you children, in fact, you will be the father of many children, he named Abram's, or changed Abram's name to Abraham. And the word Abraham means the father of nations or the father of many. So essentially what God says is, Abraham, I'm going to do for you even better than what your parents hoped would be true of you. By the way, God's grace always extends beyond what we can see, amen, or even what our parents can see. And so Abram's, or Abraham's original name was Abram. Number three, Lot is Abraham's nephew. You see this in chapter 11 and verse number 27. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Now this is important because we're going to talk about Lot in a few weeks. Lot, you know the name Lot, don't you? Lot of Sodom and Gomorrah fame. Oh really, maybe we should say Sodom and Gomorrah infamy. Lot who, who pitched his tent down in the Jordan Valley in the well-watered plains and where there was much fruit in the good land. And yet he was overwhelmed and his family was overrun with evil and with sin. This was Abraham's nephew. Now it's interesting, if you go to chapter 14, verse 16, he is called Abraham's brother. In fact, somebody's already asked me this this week uh, because they like, they, like good students of Scripture, they were reading ahead And they said, wait a minute, I I read where Lot is called Abraham's brother. Is he his brother or his nephew? Which is it? Well, it's both. He is his nephew, but he's called his brother. Why? Because in the genealogy of things, you had Terah, who had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran had the son Lot. Haran then dies, and so uh, Lot moves up a rung in the genealogical ladder. And so he is positioned as Abraham's brother, even though he is, in fact, Abraham's nephew. Y'all doing okay? Say amen if you are. 
I'm pushing pretty quick. Number four thing that I want you to know is that Sarah's original name was Sarai. You saw that as we were reading Genesis 11. Her original name was Sarai. But in Genesis 17, when, when God says to, to um, uh, Abraham, you're going to have all of these children, your, he says your wife, Sarai, is going to be a mother of nations. She's going to be the mother of kings. So call her name Sarah. And the word Sarah, the name Sarah, means the prevailing princess or the persisting one. And she did persist. She began barren, defeated, broken, and yet, by God's grace, she persists and she is the mother of nations. And in fact, Sarah was very beautiful. You'll remember, and we'll see this as we study, that there was a time when Abraham lied about Sarah when they came into Egypt because he, she was so beautiful. And he, he said to her, don't tell Pharaoh you're my, my wife. He'll kill me and take you into his harem. Tell him you're my sister. He did that because she was so beautiful. And in fact, did you know that rabbinical literature, now this is not in the Bible, but rabbinical literature speaks of Sarah's beauty and says this. It says that Sarah was so beautiful that all other women in her presence seemed to be apes. Isn't that awful? That's terrible. But that's what the rabbis say. She made everybody else look like a, an ape. She was so beautiful. Well, the fifth thing I want you to know is that Sarah, despite her beauty, Sarah was brokenhearted because she was unable to bear children. This is very clear in chapter 11 and verse number 30 where the Bible says explicitly, but Sarai was barren. She had no child. She could not bear children. And yet, she did. She would ultimately bear a son when she's 90 years old and Abraham is 100. They will have this son Isaac by the power and the grace of God. And Isaac will have two sons, one Jacob, one Esau. And Jacob will have 12 sons. And those 12 sons will become the 12 tribes and the nation of Israel. And so Isaac is the firstborn of all the nation of the Jews. And his father Abraham is the father of the nation of the Jews. All right? That's what we need to know is that Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. Now secondly... I want you to jot this down. We should know that Abraham is not only the father of, of Israel, but Abraham is the father of faith. Abraham is the father of faith. As soon as you get that jotted down in your notes, go back to Romans chapter 4, and let's meet back there to conclude today. Abraham is the father of faith. When you think of the name Abraham, I want you to always think of faith. In the same way, if we were, if we were playing a word, ma a word game and I said a word and said, tell me the first word that comes to your mind. If I said Moses, most of you would say Ten Commandments or, or law. Or if I said to you, Thomas, what would you say? Doubter or doubting. In the same way that you would associate the law with Moses, in the same way that you associate doubting with Thomas, I want you to always associate faith believing with Abraham because he is in fact the father of faith. Back in Romans chapter 4 verse number 3 look what the Bible says about Abraham. For what do the scriptures say? Verse 3 asks. Abraham believed God. 
Abraham believed God. Let let me give you a a word of advice today. Everybody look up here and listen. Watch from East Campus. Listen. Be like Abraham, okay? Be more like Abraham. Believe God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, verse 3 says, for righteousness. Look at chapter 4, verse number 11. Where the Bible says in verse 11, in the middle of the verse, that Abraham would be the father of all them that believe. Wow. He's not just the father of the Jewish nation. He's the father of every one of us who are believers. If we share his faith, we then are part of the faith family of Abraham. Verse 16. In verse 16, he says that he is the father. Last sentence of the verse. That he is the father of us all. And verse number 17 says that Abraham is the father of many nations. Why? Because within every nation in the world, there are believers. And he is the father of believers in all of these nations. And so Abraham went not just from being the father of the nation of the Jewish people, but the father of all who would share in his faith. And I want to close our time today. I want to, I want to conclude by talking about this aspect of Abraham's life, his character. I want to talk about his faith. So we'll talk about the benefits of faith, and then I just want to briefly mention the basis of his faith, and then we'll close by talking about the brotherhood or the fellowship of his faith. Jot it down. Let's begin by talking about the benefits of faith. Now, I said to you a moment ago, Abraham was a believer. Be, be more like Abraham. Be a believer. What are the benefits if you become a believer? Well, like Abraham, there would be many benefits, but let's stay with the text, and let me point out to you two benefits of faith that are mentioned in the text. Here's the first one. Write it down. It is to say that faith is counted as righteousness. Faith is counted as righteousness. Righteousness, listen carefully, righteousness is the condition of rightness. It is the condition of being right. And it is the quality, the foremost attribute of God. Listen, listen, let me say it this way. God is righteous. That means he's right. He's never wrong. He never does anything wrong. He never thinks anything wrong. He never leans in a wrong direction. God is right. There's no evil in him. There's no shadow in him. He is perfectly righteous. Not only is it the character of God, it's also the nature and the requirement of heaven. Heaven is a perfectly righteous place. There's nothing, no one unrighteous in heaven. Listen to what Revelation 21, 27 says very plainly. No thing or no person will ever enter into heaven that is unclean. So stay with me. God is perfectly righteous. Heaven is perfectly righteous. No unrighteous thing or person will ever enter into the presence of this perfectly righteous God in his perfectly righteous heaven. And if those things are true, would you agree with me that every person in this room and every person at these campuses and every person watching online and every person in the world has a problem? Because Romans 3.10 says there is none. How many are righteous? None. Not one. 
If God is perfectly righteous and I'm unrighteous and heaven is perfectly righteous and if I went there, I would bring my unrighteousness into it and thereby defile heaven, I acknowledge that I have a problem. But here's the benefit of faith. Listen carefully. The benefit of faith is this. Even though we are unrighteous, God says, if you will have faith, I will count your faith as righteousness for you. Somebody ought to say, amen. Praise God. God says, I know you're unrighteous. I know you don't have righteousness. I know you're wrong and evil and, and fallen and broken and sinful. I get it. But just trust me. If you'll put your faith in me, I'll take your faith and I'll count it like it's righteousness. Chapter four, verse three, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. I love verse number nine where he says in that verse that, he, that this faith was reckoned. Let's see at the end of the verse, reckoned. It means it's an accounting term. It was, it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Verse number 22, he uses the word imputed. It means to, to be put to the account of, imputed. So here's what God says. I know you're unrighteous. I'm calling you to faith. And if you'll have faith, then I will count your faith as righteousness. I will declare you righteous. And therefore, you can be with me for eternity in heaven. That's the gospel. The second thing about this issue of or benefit of faith is that faith makes impossibilities possible. Faith makes what is impossible absolutely possible. Look at what verse number 17 says. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations uh, before, whom, before him whom he believed, even God, that is Abraham believed God He believed in God who, watch this, who quickens the dead, makes the dead come alive. And he believed in God who calls those things which be not as though they are. Here's here's what faith does. Here's the benefit of faith. It makes impossibilities possible. It it brings to life things that were dead. Where would we begin talking about that? Here, Here it is. Faith takes a dead soul. Do you know that without Christ, you are spiritually dead? We are all dead in trespasses and sins. That's the reason we can never earn our way into heaven. We have, there's no life in us to even have any hope of earning our way to heaven. We are spiritually dead. But when God gives us faith to believe the gospel, he regenerates, brings to life that dead soul, makes it alive in Christ, and it will live forever. He does the impossible, makes the dead soul alive, live. But what else does he do? He brings life to dead relationships. He brings life to dead circumstances. You may say, this circumstance in my life is hopeless. I cannot be fixed. It is broken beyond repair. Here's my question. Where is your faith? Because faith can take impossibilities and make them possible. And it can take dead things and bring those things to life. Amen? Listen, listen. I know marriages are tough. They're hard. Circumstances. And it's never simple. It's never clean. It's always complicated. But I'm telling you, if you know Jesus and your spouse knows Jesus, you need to hear your preacher say that nothing is impossible with God. He can heal that marriage because he does the possible out of the impossible. He can bring it back to life. He can. What else does he do? 
He he brings hope where there is no hope. He brings peace in a world of chaos. And then, verse number 17 says, not only that, not only does he bring the dead things to life, but secondly, I love this, verse 17, he calls those things which be not. Now, if y'all are listening, say amen. (laughs) This is the God in whom we're called to have faith who takes things that don't exist, that they are not. And he speaks to them like they exist. He he speaks to them as though they are, and he calls them into existence. This is what he does. It's it's his power. Now, we could say, well, I I know where that began, Genesis 1-1, and God said, let there be, and there was. Fiat, creation. There was no creation. God spoke, and there was creation. Amen? Amen? Can I just take a, take a survey? We are creationists around here. Amen? God created the heavens and the earth in, seven, or in six days, rested on the seventh day. He did not do it through the process of evolution. He did it by his own word. There was no creation. Now there is creation because God said. That was not a strong enough amen. <laughs> he speaks to things that are not, and he calls them as though they are. What about the nation of Israel? There was no nation of Israel, and he spoke it, and it came into existence. What about Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac, who was not, could never be, and yet God spoke it, and it was to be. These are the benefits of faith, that God will call you righteous, and he will do the impossible in your life if you will trust him. The second thing that we need to understand about faith is its basis, and I think you would agree with me when we read through Romans chapter 4, Abraham was a man of great faith. He was. Verse 3, he believed God. Verse 18, he believed that he would become the father of many nations. You see that verse 18? Who against hope, there was no hope of him being a daddy. Yet regardless of that, he believed. Even though he was almost 100 years old when God said, you're going to have a son. He believed it. Look at the next verse, verse 19. Being not weak in faith, he was strong in faith. He considered not his own body now dead, When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Here's what that means. She was far beyond childbearing years. Far beyond. And he was beyond child-producing years. And yet God said, you're going to have a son. And he, he didn't concern himself about his body. He didn't concern himself about her body. He said, if God said it, I believe it. Right? He had faith. Verse number 20. He didn't stagger at God's promise. It means to refuse to believe. He wasn't trying to figure that thing out. He was just believing God. Number, uh, verse 21, he was fully persuaded. Would you agree with me? If you do shout amen, Abraham had great faith. Amen? amen. Strong faith. But listen to me. The strength of Abraham, if y'all are listening, shout amen, both campuses. Amen. The strength of Abraham's faith is not what produced the blessing. But rather, it was, his, it was the strength of the object of his faith. You can have great faith in an unreliable thing or person and receive nothing. But Abraham's faith was based on the word of God, the promises of God. In fact, if you read through chapter four, you'll come to verse 13, 14, 16, 20, and 21. And all five of those verses talk about the promise of God. The promise. God made a promise. God made a promise. God gave a promise. This promise was given. And it says that he believed in the promise. 
You may be sitting here saying, I'd love to have all those things, but I don't know if I have as much faith as you have, Pastor. I don't know if I have as much faith as this person sitting in front of me or behind me or those people shouting amen. I don't know if my faith is that strong. It doesn't matter if you have strong faith or a little faith. I'm telling you that the basis of what you're being called to put your faith in is never changing. It is the word of Almighty God. So you say, well, can I really believe in a God I've never seen? Can I, can I really find peace and joy in this life? Can I really hope to go to heaven after all the things I've done and the sins I've committed, can I really be forgiven? The promise has been made. And if you will put your faith in the promise, then the answer is yes, a thousand times yes. Amen? Final thing is the, what I would call the brotherhood of faith or the fellowship of faith. Who is this faith for? Well, verse number 16, notice he says, Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end. Here's the end game. That the promise might be certain or sure to all the seed, all of Abraham's children. Not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to all those who have the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Who gets to join this thing? It's simply the people who have the faith of Abraham. You don't have to match the strength of his faith. You just have to match the character of his faith that you believe the word of God. Some of you may have grown up in church world. I'm out of time. But you may have grown up in church world singing this little song. Father Abraham, you remember? Had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Here's my question. Are you? Are you a son or a daughter of Abraham? A son of God? Because you share the faith of Abraham. You say, what do I have to believe? Where do I have to place my faith? What is the promise that I have to put my faith in in order to be a part of this family? Look at verse 23 and 24 at the end of chapter 4. Now it was not written for his sake alone that righteousness would be imputed to him, but also for us, to whom righteousness shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. That's what you have to believe. Jesus died for my sins because I'm a sinner. Jesus was buried and he rose from the dead because he's God. And he rose so that he could be my savior and justify me. I know I'm unrighteous and can't make my own way to heaven. I believe Jesus is the Savior and he can take me to heaven. So God, look over my unrighteousness and count my faith as righteousness. If you'll do that, then heaven will be your home. God can do the impossible in your life and you'll begin to live in the promise of God like Abraham did.